Well, this is it. We 18, 19 sermons somewhere in the book of Ephesians. And so it feels like we've been here forever. Uh, but I have loved this series, and I hope, trust you have too, as we've been learning about our true identity, embracing that, an identity in Christ. And so here we come to the end of the book of Ephesians today. And next week, as Pastor Jeff mentioned earlier, we're launching into a summer series called Avoiding Stupid. And, uh, and hopefully you and I can avoid stupid together by looking at some of the Proverbs uh, there. We're going to take four or five weeks in the book of Proverbs. But for now, Ephesians chapter 6, as we bring this to a close. Last summer, I had an opportunity to go with uh, my two oldest children to Washington, D.C., where we did the whole D.C. experience. One of the things that I thought looked cool was the International Spy Museum. I thought, oh, this, this sounds really neat. So we got our tickets and, and went to the International Spy Museum. It, uh, I think I found it a lot more fascinating than my children did. But uh, it's three floors, and you walk through there, and you see a lot of Cold War, Cold War era technology. Like one of the things they had there was this suitcase, and in the suitcase was hidden a reel-to-reel recorder, so you could record, you know, your conversation with someone with this briefcase. And I just thought, man, everyone's got a smartphone now that can do that. It's just crazy. But the technology they have. But one of the things that I thought was most interesting about in the spy museum was the section on Vietnam. And if you uh, looked in Vietnam, they had a whole cutaway of the Viet Cong tunnel system in Vietnam. Uh, what happened is when the U.S. entered v- the, the Vietnam War, uh, they set up their base outside the city of Saigon on a hill, their main U.S. base. They figured uh, that seemed good, get away from the city where there would be less threatening. They could defend it better. It was up high. And they thought this would be a great idea. What they didn't know is that for years before, the Viet Cong had been digging tunnels. And they put their base right on top of one of the tunnel systems of the enemy. And so right where they were, thinking they were safe, And so you had people discussing uh, top secret things in this base, thinking that they were safe. They knew there was an enemy there. They just didn't think the enemy was in their base. What they didn't know is right underground, the enemy had complete access to their plans. The Bible says that those who are in Christ are engaged in a spiritual battle. And we have a hidden enemy. Many of us who are in Christ know this. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that we have an enemy, the devil. We know that Satan is our enemy. And yet, like those soldiers who thought they were safe and secure in their base, oftentimes Christians think the enemy is somewhere else. He's not right here. He's not really interacting with me on a daily basis. He's not really there. He's somewhere else. We think we're safe. But the reality of it is many of us have forgotten that we are in a spiritual war. And as a result, we live like, realistically, like we're on vacation. Have you forgotten about the enemy? I would ask you today. Have you ever wondered why life has certain struggles, why you're in such a battle? Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to sometimes to try to live an obedient, Christ-following life? But you need to know today... And Paul is going to remind us as he wraps up the book of Ephesians. Paul is going to remind us and remind you that in Christ you are not on vacation. You are enlisted in a spiritual battle. You are not on vacation in Christ. No, you are enlisted in a spiritual battle. 
And so I want to talk about a couple things about our identity as warriors in this spiritual battle today. And I really want to talk about three things that come right out of the text. And the first is the reality of the battle. In Christ, you are a warrior, and there is a very real battle. In fact, the enemy is real. The enemy is real. In verse 12, the apostle Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, we're tempted to think about life in ways where life is about, we think, about flesh and blood, the things we see, the things are around us. But Paul reminds us that something is going on that's more and greater than that. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he says. You know, so many people, when they think about spiritual realm, the realm of of God and the realm of Satan and the realm of angels and demons, we think all this stuff, we tend to think of fictional works, you know, like magic or Harry Potter-esque things. We tend to think of it in terms of make-believe. We're ingrained. In fact, science would tell us that the spiritual realm doesn't even exist. But, you know, I would tell you today that the Christian faith is not opposed to science. In fact, it was Christians who came up with science, It was Christians who said, we want to find an orderly way to describe what we see in God's nature around us. That's where science came from. But science in and of itself is not enough. We're not anti-science as Christians. The problem with science, I think, is this. Science acknowledges that we can record and observe what we can detect with our five senses. What we can see, what we can hear, what we can smell, what we can taste, what we can touch. The five ways we perceive things, we observe. That's what science is. We make observations and take conclusions from those observations. The problem is it's lacking. What if there's something that our five senses don't cover? What if there's something that we can't see or hear or observe in this way? It's almost arrogant for us to claim That that's all there is. If it's only these five senses, this is all there is. Christianity is not opposed to science. We embrace science as a way to say, this is what God is doing. But there's something more than that. There's something more going on here. And that's what the Apostle Paul reminds us. Is that this enemy is not flesh and blood. This enemy is very real. He says in verse 11, Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take your stands against his schemes. The Bible is very clear that Satan is a very real person. The Bible talks about Satan from Genesis to Revelation. And just a quick flyover of a theology of Satan and demons. Uh, we were reminded that Satan, the Bible says, was a created being. He was an angel. As an angel, he had no body, although he could take, angels can take appearance as bodily form. Angels are subordinate, so Satan was subordinate to God. Satan is infinitely less powerful than God. As a created being, he is not equal. Sometimes we like to think about Satan and God as equals, you know, like locked in this cosmic battle. And that's really very an Eastern yin and yang thought. That is not a Christian thought. The Christian God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. And Satan's pride that got him kicked out of heaven. He said, you know what? I, even though I'm a created being, I want to be like God. Satan is known as the prince of this world. He's a false prince, but that's his title. Jesus' kingdom invaded this world. 
One of the most powerful moments, I think, in the story is when, if you remember the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, you remember when Satan takes Jesus and says, how about this? If you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And I, thought, I always wonder, why is that even tempting to Jesus? He's God. They're already his. Why is that even a temptation? Well, it's because what Satan was offering to him, what Satan was offering is his realm. He said, this is my realm. I'll give it to you without cost. I'll give it to you. Just bow your knee to me. You won't have to go through any of this pain, suffering, hardship. You don't have to do it. Just, just bow to me and I'll just relinquish it to you. The reality is Satan is the prince of this world, but he's a false prince. And at that moment when Jesus died, when he rose again, when the stone rolled away and Jesus broke out, the God's kingdom broke through in this world in a very special and powerful way. Satan hates God. Satan hates God's children. And his goal is to destroy the work of God. Satan is a bad guy. I mean, he's your classic bad guy. He is the guy who, all throughout scriptures, while infinitely subordinate to God, is in rebellion, and he wants to take down God and his children, even though he knows it's a losing battle, he's going to do it anyway. That's Satan. He's a very real enemy. What, what are demons then? Well, demons are Satan's henchmen. When Satan fell, scripture tells us a third of the angels decided to go with him. A, a third of the angels. So, those angels became demons. They're chose, they're, they chose a new master, and they do Satan's bidding. It's also important to remember that Satan's not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at once. Not so. Satan's restricted to one place at one time. Satan's very presence, it's very important that he would have sort of an army of demons working for him to do his bidding, because Satan can't be everywhere at once. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Satan is not God. So the demons, his henchmen become important to him. And so when we look at verse 12, these are all ways. Verse 12, he says, this is Paul's way of describing this spiritual reality. He says, it's not flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is using words to remind us that more is going on here than we think. Now, the enemy has a certain tactic. You know, Satan has a tactic. As we want to know that our enemy is real, Satan has certain tactic, tactics. And normally, we sort of downplay these tactics. Normally, we don't really think about how Satan works. We kind of think of Satan in terms of, you know, working like the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the, the other shoulder. We have him whispering in our ear, maybe like this. If you uh, have a dog, you might appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know. Apparently, scratching the door, pee on the rug doesn't. But, uh, okay, I'm the only one that thought that was funny, but that was awesome. So, th- thanks. Uh, you know, we think of Satan kind of like this. He's whispering, you know, on our shoulder, and God's whispering in the other one. And, but Satan's tactics are much more sophisticated than that. There are some ordinary tactics he uses. Satan does entice us to sin. I mean, the scriptures replete with examples of Satan enticing Christians to sin sexually, through false teaching, through unforgiveness. He and Satan entices people just to be foolish. Uh, scripture even says that marriage between a believer and a non-believer, Satan entices towards that because he knows it'll derail. 
Satan entices through drunkenness and gossiping and idol worship and tormenting dreams. All kinds, I've just picked out a few. Satan tempts and, and, and ordinarily he's trying to pull us off track to entice us to sin. But one of the primary methods that Satan ordinarily uses, his common way he uses it, is by lying to us. Satan wants to distract and disable the people of God. When he entices you to sin, he takes you out of the spiritual battle. I mean, that's the reality. When Satan entices you to sin, he removes you from the spiritual battle. And his primary tactic is lies. Jesus told, said this of Satan. In John 8, 44, Richard, put that up there. He's, he said, first of all, he said, You're, you belong to your father, the devil, and want to carry out your father's desire. And then he's going to describe the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When Satan lies... He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's primary tactic that he and his demons use against Christians is to lie to you. And this is why this series in Ephesians has become so important, because God's word counteracts lies with truth. And what Paul does, and what we have been doing for 19 weeks now, we have been saying it's not just about who you think you are. You need to embrace who you are in Christ. You need to combat the lie that you've believed with the truth. I mean, this world would tell us, Satan would tell you that you're a consumer. It's about what you want, what you need. He gives you false accusations. The enemy will constantly tell you, you're not good enough. You stink compared to God. You're, you're worthless. You, you failed again. The enemy keeps accusing. When you're downcast, the enemy lies to you and says, everything is hopeless. You might as well just give up. In Christ, you are more than that. That's why this series, Embracing Your Identity in Christ, we wrap it up today. It's so important because the enemy is lying to us all the time. He uses ordinary tactics like that. Satan also uses some extraordinary tactics that that uh, sometimes we think of maybe in more of a movie-like sense or a fictional novel sense. But the Scripture affirms that Satan works in some pretty extraordinary ways sometimes. Extraordinary, meaning not ordinary. You know, he, sometimes Satan, Scripture says, can bring physical pain. He can bring torment, false miracles, accusations, death, oppression by demons, possession by demons. Well, those things can happen. Now, you might ask in a common question people ask me all the time, Dave, can, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Can a, could a demon possess a Christian? Well, that's interesting because that language is not used anywhere in Scripture. And so it's, we have to, just, to figure out what we mean by the word possession. The word possession means to own. So can a demon own a Christian? And the most definite answer to that is absolutely not. Because for a believer in Christ... A Christian is owned by this Holy Spirit. A Christian is sealed by the Holy Spirit's power. A Christian belongs to God. As Paul just reminded us, a Christian is an adopted child of the living God. We belong to Christ. We are His. And so there is in no sense which a demon can possess. But a demon can oppress from the outside. He can tempt, try, influence. I mean, Jesus said to Peter, he looked at him, remember, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. I can only imagine how Peter felt at that moment. 
But Jesus knew the truth that Satan was oppressing Peter. Ananias and Sapphira, Peter said to them, he says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to God. I guess the point in talking about all this is that you need to know that the enemy is real. You see, you're not, in Christ, you're not on a vacation. In Christ, you're a warrior enlisted in a spiritual battle. And that's the second thing I want to talk about within the battle is that in Christ, you're a warrior. You are a warrior. Being a Christian means being a warrior. It's a fact that Paul assumes. Look at, look at the text again. Verse 11, he says, he assumes this. He says in verse 11, put on the armor because he assumes you're a soldier and you need armor. Verse 12, he says our struggle. He assumes as a Christian you're engaged in a struggle. Verse 13, he says, therefore put on the full armor so when the day of you comes you can stand your ground. He's assuming you're in a battle that you need to stand your ground. Now, there, as warriors, there are two mindsets that I think are prevalent amongst Christians. There are two mindsets. The first mindset is the vacation mindset. I say in Christ, you're not on vacation. But sometimes it's easy to forget this, isn't there? This? Um, there was a Southwest Airlines commercial not long ago where these people were sitting on the Florida beach and they're basking in the sun and a little tiny cloud blocks out the sun for like 10 seconds and the people all sit up and they go, oh, like this pouty lip. And then the sun comes back and they smile and they lay down. And they said, any day on the beach is a good beach or something like a good day. But uh, I was thinking about that and thinking about how sometimes the things we complain about, it's like when you're on vacation. I mean, I remember when Clarissa and I had a chance to go to Hawaii not long ago. We we're sitting on the, by a pool. So the ocean's on one side, the pool's on the other. We're, it's gorgeous. And I'm starting to get annoyed because these people next to me are louder than I want them to be. And, you know, I'm getting annoyed because, you know, I, I, I'd like to get a glass of water. And where is the person bringing around the water when I need them? They're not there right then. The things that when we're on vacation that we start to complain about. And I've seen way too many Christians that live like, like this. We're complaining like we're on vacation. Now, it's not that rest is not needed for a believer or for any warrior. Most certainly rest is needed. Jesus took time. It's good to go on vacation, to rest, relax, to be free from discomfort, like a Sabbath. Jesus talked about this principle. God set up the principle of the Sabbath. It's a good thing. But vacation isn't a way of life. When we go on vacation, we're supposed to come home. We're supposed to re-engage. And it's a problem when people don't. There's two mindsets for Christians. There's a vacation mindset, but then there's a second one. There's a warrior mindset. In Christ, you are a warrior. A warrior prays, God, help me accomplish the mission. You see, a vacationary is consumed. God, help increase my comfort. Help increase my comfort. On the battlefield, a soldier doesn't ask, you know. I mean, think about the kinds of things a soldier asks for on the battlefield. He doesn't sit out there in the desert of Iraq and say, you know, a beach chair would be sure nice right now. Or maybe one of those little umbrellas for my water bottle. Like, that'd be great. No, a soldier says, I need body armor. I need ammunition. I need support. I need communications. I need to know what's going on so I can accomplish the mission. In Christ, you are a warrior. Satan's lie would be that you're on vacation. 
This is about your comfort. So for many of us, we focus on our prayers are about achieving the absence of pain. And it's really the lie of the movement of the health and wealth gospel. Preachers will smile at you and say, God wants you to have perfectly harmonious relationships. God wants you to have a bigger house and drive a better car. And he wants you to be free from all pain and all suffering. God wants you to have a vacation life. And it's just not true. Because in Christ, we're not on vacation. In Christ, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. In Christ, you are a soldier in a spiritual battle. And the focus should be on the mission. So, when we pray, God I want my pain relieved. It's not just because we want to be pain-free. It's so that we can accomplish the mission. The Apostle Paul did this. The Apostle Paul said, talked about what he called a, a thorn in the flesh. It was, we don't know what it was. It was some ailment. A lot of people think it was malaria. A lot of people think it was some kind of other physical ailment. Uh, we, we don't really know what it was, but he prayed three times that it would be relieved. So it's not wrong to pray that we would have a relief of suffering. No, not wrong at all. But it's not, it's wrong if we pray so we can get back to vacation. We pray it so we can get on mission. So together, we can be warriors in the battle. Too many Christians have forgotten what's at stake. In Christ, you're not on vacation. You're enlisted in a spiritual battle. You are a warrior. This is an interesting concept because for many of us, the concept of a warrior brings up all kinds of uh, images in our head. And sometimes it's a, it's a hard one. Uh, so many people think of this, this idea, and they really make a mistake. They think a, a warrior for Christ should be a crusader. And we think of the crusades where there was this misguided attempt to recapture the Holy Lands and slaughter massive amounts of people just to recapture a place. And there was a complete misunderstanding that God's temple is not in Jerusalem anymore. God's temple is in his people. And there's a complete misunderstanding that we're supposed to be fighting for his kingdom, which is not of this world. And there's a complete misunderstanding. But for many of us, when we say warrior, it brings up that. Um, one, of the, one of the, sometimes I get ticked at movies. And one of the, the movies I got most ticked at was one of the Chronicles of Narnia movies, because it didn't reflect what C.S. Lewis had in mind at all. There was one section where these kids bearing swords run into battle, and they yell for Aslan. And Aslan is the Christ picture of this whole thing. And they're, for Aslan, we're going to mow people down for our God. And I just, oh, it just breaks my heart. Like, you missed it. This is not the point. That's not a warrior. A warrior is engaged in kingdom work, and his kingdom is not of this world. So when we think of crusader, we think the wrong image. Another mistake people make is just to be pansies, you know. We just lop warrior out and go, what that really means is I can cruise through life with no purpose. And I just don't want to wrestle any feathers. Uh, we're going to close today. Later, uh, we're going to close the message with this song. And, and I picked it uh, particularly for this message because there's a line in the song uh, that says, it's time for battle, it's time for war. And the, that that. Can be a, if you think about it, that's a little confusing, that line at first. You know, like, hey, the image is the Crusades and whatnot. But no, no, no. What the song is declaring is that we are singing about our status as warriors for kingdom work. Spiritual warriors. Martin Luther penned this, said the same thing, essentially, when he penned a, a song years ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, and though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. 
We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, one little word shall fell him. In Christ, you're not on vacation. You're enlisted in a spiritual battle. And our battle is different than earthly wars. We are warriors of a different kingdom. In Christ, you're not on vacation. You're enlisted in a spiritual battle. Second thing I want to talk about overall, we talked about the battle, but now I also want to talk about the weapons of the battle because Paul spends a lot of time in this passage talking about you are a warrior, so you have been armed with weapons for the fight. He says, put on the full armor of God in verse 13 so that when the day of evil comes, you can stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. And Paul begins to talk about the armor of God. You know, it's very interesting. Um, The Roman world would have looked at soldiers a little bit differently than we do. Paul would start to talk about the armor of God we forget, we don't have soldiers everywhere we go, but in the Roman world, the way Rome declared its might over the world was posting soldiers everywhere. Anyone in the Roman world would walk down the street and they were used to seeing Roman centurions in their full garb and armor. Their intimidating presence reminding people, don't get out of line. Don't start a revolution. Don't mess with Rome or I will take you down. Soldiers were everywhere. People were very used to seeing soldiers. You know, I was laughing when the first time I went to the Middle East and we landed in our partner country there in, on the Arabic Peninsula, uh, we, we came out of the airport and for the first time everywhere, uh, I saw soldiers like with guns on the street. It was kind of intimidating and we're driving along and the missionary that had us there uh, Sauce kind of looking at it and he laughed. He goes, oh, don't worry. They've all got guns, but none of them probably have any ammo. And so, you know, it's like you just stand there with an intimidating presence. We don't understand what this is like, but for someone in the Roman world, they would know the very presence of soldiers everywhere around them. And they would be very keenly aware of the armor that Paul is talking about. And so he launches in and Paul begins to talk about all the defensive armor. Because the reality is, if we're engaged as warriors in a spiritual battle, we're going to need some defensive armor. And so look what he says. He says, God says, I've equipped you as a warrior with everything you need for the battle. First of all, verse 14, he says, stand firm with the belt of truth. I could spend, I I know, I could spend an entire sermon series just on each piece of the spiritual armor. We could talk in depth. I'm not sure how helpful that is, but we can recognize each piece if we just recognize each piece to say the gospel is what defends us. In verse 14, he says the truth, the belt of truth. This is just simply the idea that we live in a culture that's latent with relativism. Nobody, everyone likes the idea of truth. They just want it to be whatever they think. You know, everyone is okay. We hear it all the time. Truth is what seems good to us. Knowing the truth of the gospel will hold everything together in our lives. That's what Paul is talking about. He says the truth, Satan will attack you and make you doubt, but he says be rooted in the truth because truth is antidote to lies. We know the truth, the belt of truth. We have the truth in Christ. It's a defensive weapon. 
He also talks about righteousness in verse 14. If the belt of truth is buckled around our waist, the breastplate of righteousness is in place. The breastplate is covering the front of the soldier. You know, I love this idea. We, I always think, okay, the breastplate makes sense. Why is it righteousness? Why is this big piece right here righteousness? Well, I love this because we already identified that Satan's primary tactic is lies. His lie to the Christian is, you're not right with God. His lie to the Christian is, you've messed up one too many times. His lie to the Christian is, God's grace is big, but not big enough to cover that. God's grace, Satan's lie in all this is that you have done it, and you are just the kind of person that just messes up over and over again, and you're never going to amount to anything for God. And what I love about the breastplate of righteousness is it reminds us that in Christ, our righteousness comes not from us, but from Christ from him, from God himself. He gives us righteousness. What is righteousness? It's simply right standing. So when in and of ourselves, we would look, God would look at us and go, well, you're not righteous. I mean, you're just, that's all you do is sin. You've been sinful from the day you were born. You're not right. You're not righteous. But what we do in the gospel is God takes his righteousness and applies it to us so that in the breastplate of righteousness is in place when Satan whispers his lies to us and says, you're no good and you're a failure and you'll never amount to anything, we say, you're right. But in Christ I am. And we hold up the breastplate of righteousness, which is God's righteousness applied to us. The enemy does his thing. He lies. But in Christ we're made right. The next piece of armor that he talks about in the text, he says the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Then he talks about the shoes of peace, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You know, one of the greatest defenses a soldier can make is to be on the move. And it's kind of the old adage, it's hard to hit a moving target. A soldier should be ready to move at a moment's notice. That's the idea of the Shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. We're messengers of peace. The gospel is a message of peace with God and others. You know, this message of the gospel, that is, it's a simple message. It's not complicated. The, God, the message of the gospel is simply that Jesus died in our place for our sins. When we were trying our hardest to come to God and say, I'd like to make things right, we were unable. So God came to us. The message of the gospel brings peace. And what Paul talked about in Ephesians and over and over again is this gospel is the, brings down the dividing wall of hostility. The gospel of peace brings down barriers between peoples and brings down barriers between us and God. The feet, our feet fitted. Verse 16, he keeps talking about the next piece. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. You know, doubt and despair can sink in. Depression can be paralyzing. It just can. Um, So many Christians I know struggle with this concept of faith. They think, okay, I just need to believe. And if I can believe enough, then, then it'll be okay. I've heard so many Christians talk about how I'm struggling with my faith. And here's the problem is how we think about faith. We think about faith like this. I just gotta believe more. If I can just believe more, you know, and so we sort of go to, you know, some kind of 
clicking our heels together, magical. I got to have this quotient. We think about our faith as being on a scale of one to 10. And a real good faith is 10. And acceptable is maybe seven. But I'm like at a three because my faith is weak. That is the wrong way to think about faith. The right way to think about faith is not in our ability to believe, but in the object of our faith. If I stand on a bridge, I, hold, I stand on the bridge, and my faith is in the bridge's ability to hold me up. But it has nothing to do with my belief. I can believe rightly or wrongly all day long. It has to do with the bridge's ability. So our faith in Christ has not to do with our magical believing ability, but has to do with his faithfulness. He is the bridge that will never fall. He is the God that saves. Jesus is our shield. He stands by us during the attack. And no, we're not good enough, but our faith is in him. So the zero to 10 scale is all about the object of the faith. I'm placing my object of him and he's a 10 every time. Take up the shield of faith. He keeps going. Verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. So he talks about the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is, Paul talks about that in numerous places in numerous ways. Um, it's just simply this idea that you've been saved and you have been rescued. Satan's primary lying tool again will get you to doubt that. I remember a time in my life where uh, I feel like I was sinning so often. Like I would try, you know, a particular two or three issues in my life, and I'd be like, I need to not do that anymore, or I need to do that, and I'm not doing it. And, and I was trying so hard, and I just kept failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. And I thought, you can't save me, God. I mean, come on. Am I really saved? But the helmet of salvation, again, comes back to, it's related to the shield of faith. It's related to faith. The helmet of salvation comes over me and protects me and reminds me that it's not about me, it's about God and His saving work. Satan would lie to you. He would take you down. He would sink you into depression. He would make you feel worthless. God says something completely different. There's only one offensive piece of weaponry listened here. It's the last one. It's the only one. Verse 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, a Roman soldier had many weapons. He didn't just have the sword. But Paul picks out this one. It's an offensive weapon. Everything we need, friends, is in the Word of God. It's part of everything we do. It's, it's a key part of our transformation. You want to work. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? He quoted the Word of God. The Word of God is a powerful tool. It's why we keep trying to get it in your hands. And I don't care how it works for you. I keep talking about this version or whatever Bible app or, or these red Bibles here or telling you, please bring your Bible. It, I don't care. But the Word of God is a powerful tool against Satan. We should know it and use it. I mean, I love uh, my daughter Olivia's coming out of Little Life. I keep posting videos of her on Facebook, quoting her memory verse of the week. These two and three and four-year-olds are learning the Word of God. They're coming out with the Word of God, and they're, oh, it's so exciting. Because as Christians, the Word of God should saturate us because it's our primary weapon against the enemy when the enemy lies to us and when we go to depression and we go to all these dark places and feel worthless. The Word of God is what is powerful. 
It's why we're talking about this map of transformation. Richard, put that picture up there. You know, uh, we, we're just, this is in the, if you've never seen this before, it's okay. We haven't rolled this out on a large scale yet. But what we're talking about is saying, wouldn't it be cool if our people who are fueled by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God were being transformed? We're asking honest questions of each other. We're saying, I want to connect with not my, who I think I am, but who I really am in Christ. We're investing in God's solution and then engaging others in the process. We're going to be talking about this more and more and more and more because the Word of God is central to it all. It's the offensive weapon. Because in Christ, we are not on vacation. We're enlisted in a spiritual battle. All right, I'm going to rush through the last part here because we're running out of time. But uh, the, we get to the last part of this, and the last part really is it's, it's the place of prayer in the battle. The place of prayer. So Paul comes out of all this, and in verse 18 he says, And pray in the Spirit on all kinds of occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the saints. I love that he says all kinds of prayers. I mean, it kind of has the idea that there's not really a wrong prayer. You know? That prayer is about the battle. So whatever it is that equips us to win the battle, to fight the battle. Verse 19 and 20, he says the prayers are for a purpose. He says, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel. And I'm an ambassador in chains for this. Pray that I may declare it fiercely as I should. There is an important truth here. Is that uh, it is important how we live the gospel. But as warriors, we must also speak the gospel. It's the movement of Christians of the last 20 years to say you never have to talk about the gospel. Just live like a nice guy and people will see that. But that's not what Paul prays for. Paul prays for an opportunity. He prays that words would be given to him because he's a warrior. It's important how we live. Absolutely. It's also important that we pray for that moment where we get to speak. That's what Paul prays for. He says, listen, pray for me. I've got the armor on. I'm engaged in the battle. I'm a warrior. Because he knows in Christ he's not on vacation. He's listed in a spiritual battle. This is how Paul chooses to wrap up the entire book. This whole time he's been talking about what it means in Christ and who we really are. And, and now he wraps it up. And he says, who are you? And I just looked back at the titles from all the sermons we preached. Listen to who you are in Christ. Put them all, just listen. In Christ, you are a saint. In Christ, you're adopted. In Christ, you're an heir. In Christ, you are redeemed. You are sealed. You are appreciated. In Christ, you are alive. You are graced. You are reconciled. You are loved. You are called. In Christ, you are love and light. In Christ, you're a bride. In Christ, you are in a family. And in Christ, you are a warrior. You are more than you think you are. Because in Christ, you're not on vacation. You're enlisted in a spiritual battle. And I will remind you that the enemy will lie to you. And so use the defensive weapons that God has given you. So Paul's done this. He's reminded us of our identity. He's encouraged us to be like Christ. Now he's encouraged us to engage in the battle. And I leave you with these words that Paul leaves, left you with in the book. Because the reality of it is, 
Most of us need to be encouraged. He says in verse 21, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. As warriors, we need to be encouraged. Friday night, our elders and wives got together. Uh, it, was for some, uh, it was a kind of a leadership retreat, and we came together. And Friday night, we sat around, um, and in kind of a focused prayer and worship time, we shared stories about how God has moved and worked in the past year at Waukee Community Church. And as I just listened around the circle, I heard, you know, amazing things, like just even the idea of a vision team. That a year ago, our vision team was just wrapping up its work. This idea that, you know, a year ago we had four students in student ministry. And, uh, and you know, at, at our closing uh, middle school event, there were 300 middle school, or 30, excuse me, 30 middle schoolers inside and 100 high schools out back, students out back. And you just think, holy cow, God, thanks for bringing us into partnership with Young Life and just to be part of all this. God, you're so good. And we just talked about people and, and, and how... God is working in even just financially and, and through people growing by leaps and bounds in their faith. And I'm just hearing all the stories about how God is working in it. And it's just, we walked away from there Friday night and my heart was just encouraged. Because as warriors, sometimes we need to be encouraged. The reality is we're not on vacation. We're enlisted in a battle.